Hello and welcome. You are listening to Desperate Acts of Capitalism, a podcast about money, marketing, and how it all goes wrong. Join us on our magical journey through a wonderland of burning money. I'm Evan Swope. And I'm C.T. Kelly. All right, all right. This was a fun one. (laughs) From Wikipedia. Welcome to 1967. You are an executive working for 20th Century Fox, and you are in trouble. Five years earlier, your studio greenlit Cleopatra, an unmitigated disaster that nearly sank the company. The only thing keeping the studio afloat was the unexpected lightning strike success of 1965's The Sound of Music. Mm. But the ticket sales won't keep you afloat forever. You desperately need a hit. And with the success of Warner Brothers' My Fair Lady and Disney's Mary Poppins, the path seems clear. The public wants lavish family musicals and it's time to go all or nothing. Dr. Doolittle is a 1967 American deluxe color musical film directed by Richard Fleischer and starring Rex Harrison, Samantha Agar, Anthony Newley, and Richard Attenborough. It was adapted by Leslie Brekus from the novel series by Hugh Lofting. The film primarily fuses three of the books, uh, The Story of Dr. Doolittle, The Voyages of Dr. Doolittle, and Dr. Doolittle's Circus, Numerous attempts to adapt the Dr. Doolittle series began as early as the 1920s. In the early 1960s, actress-turned-producer Helen Winston acquired the film rights in an attempt to produce a film adaptation, to no success. In 1963, the producer Arthur P. Jacobs subsequently acquired the rights and recruited Alan J. Lerner to compose the songs and Rex Harrison to star in the project. Hmm. Problems began almost immediately. (laughs) What could go wrong? Upon numerous delays to produce a script draft, Lerner was fired from the project on May 7th of 1965 due to his endless procrastination stretching over a year as well as wanting to continue work on the Broadway musical on a clear day you can see forever. Just did not want to do this. He did... Like, I don't think he wrote a single word (laughs) for an... The... And they, okay, they didn't hire him on commission, really. Yeah. Like, they, they were paying him the entire time. Yeah. He wasn't doing shit. <laughs> it's like, what went wrong? <laughs> but it's like, d- dude, if a studio hires you to write a movie, you have to write a movie. You can't just fuck off with that. Not in my book. <laughs> I'll get to it later. <laughs> this is like 12th bottle of whiskey. Right, but he was like, uh, yeah, you can pay me for this, but I really want to work on this Broadway musical. <laughs> it's like, dude, just take the job or don't. You yeah. don't get to waffle this. <laughs> My God. <laughs> Following Lerner's departure, Jacobs considered hiring the Sherman Brothers, who had just won an Academy Award for Best Original Song for Mary Poppins. Yeah. Uh, but they were still under contract to Disney. Yeah. Jacobs then hired Leslie Brekus, who was in high demand after his success with the musical Stop the World, I Want to Get Off. <laughs> Loving these names. Yeah. I haven't seen any of these productions, but these are great <laughs> names. That sounds like the title of some, like, like humor book from, like, this year. Yeah. Stop the World. Like, essays about, like, paying taxes and, right. like, getting right. a job. And... I was going to say, it sounded kind of like one of those, like, bathroom readers from yeah, the late exactly. 1990s. Yeah. The sort of, like like, very outdated witticisms about, like, being alive in the Bush era or whatever. (laughs) Right. (laughs) 
Determined to make a good impression for his first screenplay commission, Brikus proved agreeably productive from the start for Jacobs, suggesting numerous story ideas and adding a female leading character to the film during the first meeting. Zanuck signed Brikus on for a trial run, hiring him temporarily to complete two songs for the film and the first 20 pages of the script. So this guy's fucking booking it. Like, yeah. Well, at least he's not not writing the script. Right. But it's like, not only is he writing the actual script that he was paid to write, yeah. but he's like, within the first meeting, he's already doing major script revisions. Right. And he's like, the film needs this, 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 and this. I'll get you the first 20 pages by next month. Right. He's actually passionate about this project. Right. He's like, he's genuinely trying to make a good impression and like yeah. put his heart into this. Yeah. Two weeks after he was brought on to the project, Brikus presented the song Talk to the Animals, composed in mind for Harrison, uh, Rex Harrison, the lead. And he was officially hired. By July of 1965, Brikus followed up with a full script that included various song suggestions while effectively blunting the book's racist content <laughs> in an adaptation that was met with approval from Josephine Lofting. We don't get into it, but the original Dr. Doolittle books are extremely racist. They are some of the most, like, comic like ridiculous 1920s racism right where it's like it, it's not like that whole it's not the whole like depressing like 1950s racism yeah where it's like people are seeing the sort of societal changes and they're like intentionally trying right to dehumanize <laughs> like dehumanized black people it's like that kind of goofy 1920s racism where they legitimately don't see black people as people yeah and it like kind of loops around into this insane whimsy yeah. it's like like legitimately one of the main characters in the book is this like so he's clearly supposed to be polynesian but they wrote him like a central african guy right. There's like this island tribe, and the uh, the the leader is named Prince Bumpo. <laughs> really, these are Polynesian names, right? It's like they did. They're not going to do research yeah. into Polynesian culture. <laughs> they're right? probably called Prince Bumpo or something, right? It's like they like oh, we're just going to give them an authentically stupid name, yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> right, because like readers have no context for like what a Polynesian name, so people are no. like, they're like they probably are named Prince Bumbo. The writer or... didn't yeah. have any context. They were just like, oh, he's one of he's one of these foreigns or yeah. whatever. It's 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 comically racist, yeah. but they they did a lot to blunt it. But it mm. would the, the ending film is still pretty racist. <laughs> Not gonna lie, <laughs> like, but it's like. If you actually sat and watched the 1967 yeah. production, it's racist. But just understand that it's like 5% as racist as the book yeah. is. It's so bad. Right. Yeah. So they did tone it down. A ton. Yeah. They toned it down a ton. Yeah. Like, blunted is really the right word for this. Right. It's like all of the, like... It, the actual production is it's just that kind of, like, 1967 kind of background racism. Yeah. It's not as explicitly racist. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, it's, I would assume it's the same level of racism as, like, most films in, yeah. released in the late yeah. 60s. It's just sort of, like, it's your everyday 1960s racism instead of the, like, phrenology-level racism yeah. of right. the actual books. Yeah. <laughs> so, the problems began... Almost immediately. Rex Harrison, puffed up by his best, act his best actor Oscar for My Fair Lady, rightly or wrongly, 
reckoned himself Dr. Doolittle's prime draw, and kept threatening to walk off unless he got his way, an attitude that the film's obliging journeyman director, Richard Fleischer, had no authority to curb. <laughs> right. And Leslie Brekus had to cater to Harrison's tantrums or be the next for the chop. So it's like the entire production is all centered around Rex Harrison. Yeah. And we're going to get into Rex Harrison. Right. But, okay... It is pretty much a... F- Richard Fleischer is a first-time director, mm-hmm. right? He doesn't know how to run a set. Yeah. He, he's he been on sets before, but he doesn't know how to run a set. Right. Um, meaning that Rex Harrison pretty much had directorial power here. Mm. And this is Leslie Brekus's first time writing a major screenplay. Mm-hmm. So he also has to kowtow right. to Rex Harrison. <laughs> Every authority here is c- pretty much completely subservient to Rex Harrison's tantrums. <laughs> right. And even before this, Rex Harrison was sort of known for being a nightmare to work with. Right. Well, this is kind of like before. Like, I feel like the star system that was in the place in, like, the 60s, 70s, 80s, like, kind of has broken down. Because, like, you see people get fired off of film sets, like, in an instant nowadays. Oh, and there was... Okay, you're right, but the difference between like 1960s star like star power and yeah. 1970s star power is like night and day right like yes back in the 70s you if you were a lead actor you could like grab women's butts or whatever and yeah. no one would say anything but mm-hmm. like back in 1960 right. you could like murder people yeah. and you wouldn't care you could you could drive drunk to work 2 hours late right. like whip out your dick and piss on something expensive in the middle of filming and no one could do anything. Right. It was like, you ever see Mad Men? Yeah. It was like that. Mm. It was like there was no accountability. You could do literally whatever you wanted. Right. Plus the studios are like, this is our actor. We're not finding another one. Or it's like, they, they did, but everyone else was also like this. Right. (laughs) Um, And this is different for like, explicitly white guys mm, like yeah. it's still 1960s yeah if you were black none of this applied to right. you yeah exactly and we're gonna get into that yeah. later <laughs> learner's replacement by Brekus gave harrison the chance to sit out his contract for the role of bumpo sammy davis jr was hired oh no sammy davis jr <laughs> playing bumpo playing prince like one Bu- of the most accomplished singers in america in history yeah <laughs> playing prince bumpo yeah the songs were fucking bops, though. Like, they really rocked. Okay. Yeah. Um, like, Talk to the Animals is still kind of stuck in my head. Nice. Um, uh, for the role of Bumpo, Sammy Davis Jr. was hired, but Rex Harrison demanded that Davis be fired from the project as he wanted to work with a, quote, real actor, not a song and dance man. <laughs> he is saying this to Sammy yeah. Davis fucking Jr. Yeah. Like, and, okay... Rex, this is Rex Harrison. Yeah. A fucking no, like, right. he's like, he has one Academy Award nomination, right? right? <laughs> Talking to Sammy Davis Jr. Yeah. He said this shit to his face. Yeah. Sammy Davis Jr. is a household name for everyone in America. Changed the course of music. Yeah. Changed the course of film. Right. Like, he changed what it meant to be a black actor. Right. Like, and this. Rex Harrison is just like, 
telling him to his face that he's like, I don't want to work with no song and dance, man. It's like, go fuck yourself, yeah. Rex Harrison. Sammy Davis Jr. is such a big star that, like, even the white people in Hollywood don't fuck with him. It's right. like, you respect Sammy Davis Jr. Yeah. Like, he... He is such a star that, like, even the white assholes in Hollywood have to not be racist right, towards him. Right. And it, and Rex Harris, like, <laughs> part of what this did is that it imme- pretty much immediately started turning people against Rex Harrison. Mm-hmm. Like, people really hated him for this. Right. Um, uh, so it's like, this is the place that black people are in America. Yeah. Like, you... Sammy Davis Jr. was, like, this... Drawing a comparison yeah. isn't really possible, right? Right, but it would seriously be something like: imagine if, imagine if Hannibal Burris <laughs> was like, imagine if Hannibal Burris was refusing to work with Helen Mirren, right? Like somebody who isn't even a house, really a household name, yeah. Talking shit to one of the most <laughs> famous and respected people right. in all of Hollywood, yeah. It's, it's like. The the amount of entitlement here yeah. isn't even really possible. Right. It's insane. Yeah. In his place, he suggested Sidney Pointer, despite the fact that Pointer was not a musical performer. <laughs> Wait, Sidney Poitier? Yes. Poitier, yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, That's all good. It's a difficult name to I, I think it autocorrected to Pointer oh, yeah. here. Um, so he suggested Sidney Poitier, despite the fact that Poitier was not a musical performer. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, this is a guy who has to so- sing multiple songs, right? Sing and dance. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and Sidney Poitier is, like, a very, like, well-established, like, dramatic actor. Right. Yeah. Right. But it's like, it's a musical, Rex. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to work with no song and dance, man. It's a musical, yeah. Rex. <laughs> This is a man who will be singing and dancing in the movie. You have to work with a song and dance yeah. man because that's what you are paying people to do. Yeah. <laughs> Jacobs and Fleischer flew to New York to meet with Poitier, who accepted the part only on one condition, to personally meet with Brikus. The two then met with Davis Jr., who was performing at the Majestic Theater, to inform him that he would be released from his contract. Imagine imagine being like it's like you're super hyped for your first time screenwriting songwriting gig yeah. and you got hired by 20th Century Fox to do their big breakout yeah. like save the boat musical right and you have to fly to New York to tell <laughs> Sammy Davis Jr who is performing at the Majestic you have to fly to New York to tell Sammy Davis Jr to his face that you're firing him yeah. in favor of in favor of Sidney Poitier because Rex Harrison told you to. That's like that's like a traumatizing scenario. Right. <laughs> it's like I feel legitimately bad for them. Yeah. That's that's like harrowing. Yeah. Oh God. Oh, da, 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 da. Angered at the casting change, Davis Jr. threatened to go public and personally sue Harrison <laughs> because, like, fuck no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fuck off. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> The next day, Poitier considered leaving his role as he did not want to betray Davis Jr., but eventually stayed in the role. Oh, so Poitier ended up being cast. Yeah. Oh, jeez. I think part of it was, like, you don't, like, if you're hired for the bit, you take the bit. Yeah. And it's, like, it's kind of a win-win, because on one hand, you get the part, but on the other hand you lose the part to Sammy Davis Jr., who then goes public and fucks over Rex Harrison. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, that's, 
That's a win-win for yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> um, for the role of Math, for the role of Matthew, Bing Crosby and Danny Kay were on the short list, but Anthony Newley was cast, which angered Harrison because he had suggested David Wayne. Harrison later showed contempt for Brikus's script and lyrics and demanded to sing live on set instead of lip-syncing to pre-recorded tracks. Shortly thereafter, Harrison was fired for the project. Oh, really? Um, yes. Oh, no. In his place, Peter Ustinov, Alec Guinness, and Peter O'Toole were considered. Mm. All good choices. Yeah. Right? Um, instead, they hired Christopher Plummer as a replacement. Also a decent choice. Yeah. But not my first. But when Harrison agreed... But when Harrison agreed to stay, the producers paid Plummer his agreed-upon salary to leave the production. This is ridiculous. Like, this is, like, just pre-production. Yeah, (laughs) right. Like, they haven't even started filming yet. Rex Harrison was just like, I want to sing on set. It's like, but Rex, that would waste, like, a shit ton of time and money. Like, like, we don't do that in 1967. Right, we're not going to have a piano, man. Play along. Like, Rex, you can't... It's like, that's an enormous waste of time. And they're like, all right, fine. Fuck you, you're fired. Yeah. It's like, all right, uh, we'll go get... We'll go get Plummer. And yeah. then Plummer's like, oh, sure, I'll come on. Yeah. And then Rex Harrison's like, no, 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 I still want the bit. Give yeah. me the part. And they're like, oh, fucking fine. Yeah. Because he's he's this big A-list star that yeah. has all this name recognition, so they want to keep him on the production, right. which is even worse. Yeah. And so they're they're hemorrhaging. They're already hemorrhaging money playing, uh, paying a second lead actor. <laughs> to not act in to this To not film. act. <laughs> For the role of Emma Fairfax... Harrison suggested Maggie Smith, his co-star in The Honeypot. Barbara Streisand and Haley Mills were approached for the role, but salary negotiations broke down. Mm. The role eventually went to Samantha Agar. Her singing voice was overdubbed by Diana Lee. Mm. Just when shooting was about to commence, in order to save thousands on the project, Fleischer and Zanuck decided to reduce Bumpo's role, which was drastically increased due to Poitier's casting. They regrettably informed Poitier that he would be released from his contract before he started filming his scenes and Jeffrey Holder was cast as his replacement. So after all that drama. After all of that, they fucking fired Sidney Poitier too. This is insane. It's insane. Like, uh, this... Here's where it starts to get crazy. Oh no. Over a hundred over twelve hundred live animals were used in the film. Holy shit! <laughs> Think about that. Like, okay, just having one dog yeah. on set. Like, okay, for the um for the uh, the recent Pet Cemetery remake, yeah. right? They like they had this cat, right? It's not one cat. It's a team of cats that all look similar yeah. that are trained to do specific things, yeah. like you know, sit in one place, make a scary noise, like run. Right. Yeah. Those are all different cats, yeah. right? Having one animal in the script means having a team of animals. Right. And it's not just one handler. You have a team of animal handlers. Yeah. And having live animals on set is one of the it's Famous in Hollywood for being one of the most horrendously expensive yeah. things that you can do in a film. Yeah. They had 1,200 <laughs> live animals, including dogs, pigs, birds, and even giraffes, all of which required understudies. <laughs> which is, like, probably doubling your, like, 
staff of not a movie. even that's it's like the entire budget <laughs> this is ludicrously expensive that this is legitimately like 85% of the film's right. budget yeah which is you they would never do that no. like nowadays no <laughs> there are anecdotes of a goat who ate Fleischer's script and a <laughs> parrot that learned to yell cut <laughs> All the cameramen cut. <laughs> no, it was the fucking parrot. It was the goddamn parrot again. God fucking. The goat ate my script again. <laughs> I pissed my pants again. Can I get some new pants? Yeah, now. <laughs> uh, in one instance, ducks for ducks for the film were placed in, on a lake, but had apparently forgotten how to swim oh, and no. begun to sink. Oh, no. The crew members allegedly had to jump into the water to save them. That's horrifying. You place like 15 ducks in a pond and you're like, and action of the duck. <laughs> <laughs> Just like diving into No, not the ducks. <laughs> Boss, what do we do? We can't afford new ducks. <laughs> jump in the lake. But we're in costume. We can buy new costumes. The ducks are more expensive. If we lose any ducks, it's your head. Those are trained pedigree ducks. <laughs> They got papers, but papers, but box, but boss, the costumes. Those ducks are more expensive than you'll ever be. Get in that pond. That's hilarious. Uh, animals also bit the actors and defecated on the cast and crew. Which I guess that's just. I mean, if you're having live animals, that's just part of the contract. But, but these are like large animals. Yeah. These are like goats and sheep and giraffes, and they're like shitting everywhere. Yeah. So much fucking shit. <laughs> Fuck! Uh, a giraffe... Like, okay, we said giraffe earlier. The giraffe... All the giraffe... Most of the giraffe scenes got cut. So a giraffe that hardly appears in the film reportedly held up shooting for days after it injured Rex Harrison by, quote, stepping on his cock. situation happens I, I, <laughs> how to how like the angle like how does it even get into his was he just like lying down on the ground <laughs> giraffe just like approaches him and just like stomps on his penis like, that's like that's the hardest i've laughed in the podcast so I, far you like never laugh you you don't laugh. That is the that isn't the hardest I've heard you laugh on the podcast. That's like the hardest I've heard you laugh in like the last year. Because <laughs> it's so ridiculous. Well, because I was not expecting that. I, thought, I was expecting like his foot or his hand or something. It's just like like it's like there you you already have the inherent the inherent humor of like having someone having someone have an animal step on their dick yeah. <laughs> but the fact that it's Rex Harrison yeah. like this respected actor who's a dick yeah. and who deserves it right. but the fact that it was a giraffe yeah. like an ex- of a, all animals a crazy exotic animal yeah. <laughs> and the fact that like this happened in real life yeah. <laughs> but like what really makes that for me is the idea that there might be film of it. Yeah. <laughs> that he probably had, like, struck from the record, like, you're right. not allowed to... That he was just like, burn that fucking tape. Yeah. <laughs> like, like threaten murder if someone released the footage. Right. <laughs> but it's like, 
I can see why that held up the filming. (laughs) It's a pretty extreme scenario. Rex, are you okay? Goddamn giraffe stepped on my cock. (laughs) A goat ate my script again. (laughs) Can I get a new script? (laughs) In June of 1966, principal principal photography went underway with the village scenes being shot in Castlecombe in Wiltshire, in Wiltshire, in uh, Wales. Hmm. The producers did not anticipate that the trained animals for the production would be quarantined upon entering the United Kingdom. You can't bring live animals overseas. (laughs) Who knows what fucking diseases they have. (laughs) Right. So, like, the the operative word there is quarantined. Yeah. Not like, they didn't stop them at the border. The fucking cops impounded them. Right. (laughs) Yeah. They were... They were... Almost held at gunpoint, <laughs> and the animals were confiscated. Right. Like I'm sure they got the military involved. The military didn't get involved. Like right. they threatened to get the yeah, military yeah. involved, but they didn't actually have mm. soldiers there. They basically had like police mm. and animal handlers. Right, right. The animals were quarantined upon entering the United Kingdom, forcing replacement of the animals at considerable extra expense to meet deadlines. That's probably more than considerable. Extremely considerable. The producers chose to ignore reports of the area's frequent rainy summers and resulting weather, continually interfered with shooting, and caused health problems for the animals. Yeah... I mean, it's England. Like It's Wales. Have, yeah. It's fucking Wales. Yeah. It rains all the time yeah. in Wales. I think most people in the world know that. It's like, it's like ah, but we're going in the summer. It's Wales. Yeah. It's the right. United, it is a place that is globally famous for being rainy 24 fucking yeah. 7. Yeah. Well, and the fact that it was like getting the animals sick. Yeah. So that, like, that held up production even more because they couldn't act. Right. I mean, they're damaging their most valuable and expensive resource. That they've already had to replace yeah. and hire understudies for. Yeah. All modern technologies, such as cars, television antennas, and Coca-Cola promotional signs were removed or hidden, which greatly irritated the population. Yeah. They were like, okay, like, hidden is what they said here, Yeah. but upon deeper research, they were like temporarily taking down telephone lines. <laughs> it was like significantly affecting like public health and safety. Yeah. An artificial dam was built by the production and destroyed when British Army officer Ranulf Fiennes, better known as the greatest explorer in history, the first man <laughs> to visit both the North and South Poles, and the first person to cross Antarctica entirely on foot demolished the dam with a homemade gas bomb. (laughs) That's so badass. He was later arrested, reasoning that he was keeping the, quote, mass entertainment from riding roughshod over the feelings of the people. That's amazing. (laughs) What? But, so, they artificially dammed this river, and so this guy was like, "Uh uh-uh, no, fuck you. And he... Built a fucking bomb in his garage and destroyed it. He built a fucking petrol bomb and was then arrested and said that badass line. Yeah. Uh, he's a hero, right? No, it's the 
he's still regarded as like this Welsh hero. Like yeah. people loved him. Right. Like, like yes, he got arrested, but he was never like charged with a crime. They like yeah. immediately let him go. They probably like arrested him as a formality. Right, but it's like the fact that he's like this Teddy Roosevelt-esque explorer yeah. is also cool. <laughs> hey, ho! Oh, this won't do. <laughs> Going to make a bomb in my garage. <laughs> Bully! <laughs> Bully! <laughs> Uh, budget woes continued to worsen, in which the production costs soared from its original $6 million to over $15 million. Wow. Which is a lot in 1967. In 1967, yeah. yeah. Richard Attenborough was hired for the last at the last minute to replace Hugh Griffith during the shoot. <laughs> so, like, they've pretty much replaced the entire... Like, the entire top-built cast. Right. Like, this is the room-level, like, cast replacements. Right. And it's like, they've replaced the entire... the entire A-list cast twice now, and they've yeah. replaced most of it three times. Yeah. <laughs> like, hemorrhaging money does not begin to describe this yeah, production. Right. And it only gets worse. Yeah. In October of 1966, scenes were later shot in uh, Marigot Bay, San Lucia. This location was equally problematic and problems with insects and frequent tropical storms delayed filming and left eight crew members bedridden due to intense vomiting. <laughs> to in- intense vomiting, diarrhea, and high fever. The final scene with a giant snail was complicated not only by the poor design of the large prop, but because the island's children had recently been struck by a gastrointestinal epidemic caused by freshwater snails, and mobs of angry locals constantly threw rocks at it. That's hilarious. It's getting even more, like, cartoonishly complicated. Like, the goat eating the script, and, like, the, uh... The locals are throwing rocks at the snail! A goat ate my script again! One of these freaky Welshmen blew up the dam! What? He blew up the goddamn dam! <laughs> That's insane. Uh, around this time, producer Arthur P. Jacobs was hospitalized after having a heart attack. Within a month, filming had fallen 39 days behind schedule, in which the production crew had to decamp back to California for reshoots. <laughs> so, the head producer basically, like, it said hospitalized, he died. <laughs> The head producer died of a heart attack. <laughs> he was hospitalized so much that he died. <laughs> well, he didn't die until later, but he was, like, off. Like, he left the production. Right, right, right. right. But he died. Yeah. Because of the troublesome location shoots, the production sets were later re- reconstructed in their entirety on the Fox Studio lot in California. By then, production budget had reached $17 million. Wow. Four months later, when filming had finished, Harrison insisted on re-recording his songs live on set. <laughs> this infuriated conductor Lionel Newman, yeah. but he gave in to Harrison's demands, which proved to be tedious as the orchestral arrangements had to be added later. Right. Filming was finished in 1967. Sheesh. A year later. Jeez. Okay, when we say orchestral arrangements, yeah. right? Full orchestra. Right. They were paying for a full orchestra to be on set for filming 
just because Rex Harrison wanted to record. Right. That studio orchestra included Dizzy fucking Gillespie. Oh, shit. Jazz legend Dizzy fucking Gillespie was part of the billing here. Right. right? Brought in as part of like Harrison's completely unnecessary whim. One of the most expensive musicians yeah. in all of Hollywood. Right. It's literally like having Weird Al yeah. being on set for like 12-hour days yeah. because fucking Rex Harrison wanted to record right. in, because he wanted to like stroke his ridiculous like actor-singer ego yeah. dick. Right. Like, it is in, like... And Dizzy Gillespie is there just like, yeah, sure, man. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'll take $400,000 for the day. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> There were some personality conflicts on set. <laughs> Rex Harrison was a true nightmare to work with. <laughs> Anthony Newley was incensed by Harrison's frequent anti-Semitic comments, <laughs> frequently referring to him as a quote sewer rat or a cock or a cocky little Jew. Not even trying to be subtle. <laughs> Just explicit yeah. like anti extreme anti-Semitism. Yeah. <laughs> but like the fact that he was like so brazen about it. Yeah. Like, just calling him a, a cocky little Jew. It's like, what the fuck? Might as well just call him I hate Jews. That's like what he was doing. Yeah. Harrison was apparently jealous of his Jewish co-star's participation and demanded Newley's role be reduced and disrupted and constantly disrupted scenes featuring Newley. Right. So he was like being an asshole on set to like ruin takes and make it take longer. Like just the the worst kind of bullshit. Yeah. Like <sighs> Jeffrey Holder, an American Trinidadian, who later played Baron Samedi in Live and Let Die, wow. received repeated racist abuse from Harrison's entourage. The younger cast members grew to loathe Harrison for his abuse, yeah. and they retaliated by constantly antagonizing him. <laughs> <laughs> like, That's hilarious. You gotta like. He was such, like, a racist, misogynist, anti-Semitic asshole right. that, like, everyone on set thought it was funny. Yeah. Like, it looped all the way, in, like, all the way around into, like, like, <laughs> they would just constantly goad him into yeah. saying, like, into saying, like, anti-Semitic shit. <laughs> like, just to make him mad and waste time. Yeah. Like, they, <laughs> like Anthony Newley got so fed up with his shit that he would constant he would like play up Jewish stereotypes <laughs> to piss off Rex Harrison. <laughs> like it became this like it became this like true American bonding experience yeah. of fucking with Rex Harrison. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like <laughs> It's like bringing together people of all different walks of life. Right, right. It, it literally hatred. did. It, there's <laughs> the true American experience of like having this this beautiful multiracial, multi ethnic bonding experience. Yeah. Over really, really hating a yeah. pompous white yeah. guy. <laughs> right. That's I want. I like. I would pay so much money to like. Hear the reaction when they, the giraffe stepped on him. Right. Everyone's just like dying. <laughs> right. Because like at that point you don't even hide it. Yeah. You just like your utter disdain. Like yeah. 
just like dying laughing after he's just been like severely injured by this giant giraffe. Right, right. It's like at this point, Anthony Newley's like Anthony Newley's like not on set anymore. Like they filmed all of his scenes or whatever. Just imagine being Anthony Newley at home. Yeah, and then like you like you hear like panting and frantic footsteps, and your door like boom slams <laughs> open, and one of your friends is like. Anthony, you're not gonna believe this. <laughs> it's like, and he can't get it out because he's laughing so yeah. hard. It's just like, Rex. It's like, what did he do? Tell me, please. What did he do? <laughs> Rex, a, a giraffe, a fucking a giraffe step. What happened? Please tell me what happened. Fucking giraffe stepped on his cock, <laughs> <laughs> and they just both like fall on the floor. Right. And die. <laughs> uh. <sighs> I feel like, I mean, I feel like you, you described it as like personality conflicts, but I feel like it's just kind of Rex Harrison being like it's, a terrible right, person. It's just Rex Harrison yeah. being the worst actor ever, like right. being just an utter, utterly despicable human yeah. being. <laughs> uh, no, he he later died of liver. He later died like a slow, painful death by liver cancer, which yeah. he totally deserved. Yeah. Like, he was, an utterly despicable human being. Right, and, like, no one remembers Rex Harrison. No. And it's like, good. Yeah. Utter scum of a human being. Uniting the world in hatred against you. I truly, I truly want Rex Harrison's legacy to be, like, uh, like Sammy Davis Jr. and Anthony Newley bonding over fucking with him. Yeah. I want this to be his legacy. Yeah. Harrison's Harrison's, uh, unstable wife, the actress Rachel Roberts, shocked everyone with her nightly alcoholic rampages. (laughs) At one point, feigning a suicide attempt when production shifted to several disease-ridden weeks in the tropical hell of Isla de San Lucia. It's like, this is not even a person involved with production. She's a whole other can of worms that we're not going to get into. (laughs) Right. Um... Like, not quite as despicable as Rex Harrison, but, like, not really deserving of sympathy. Right. Like, the kind of person Rex Harrison would marry. It's like, I'm sympathetic to her in the fact that she was married to Rex Harrison, but she was also an asshole that, yeah, in, like, aside from that. Right. So, Back on the Fox lot in Los Angeles, the set of the Doolittle's home had to be built on a slope upholstered with plastic and routinely hosed down with ammonia to clean away the daily accrual of animal waste. <laughs> the smell must have been They had, like, incredible. constantly hosing down the set with ammonia, which right. smells like piss. Yeah. <laughs> to get rid of constant torrent of animal <laughs> shit and animal piss. Right, and then your set smells like ammonia. Right. <laughs> it's just, everyone was miserable on right. this set, and the only thing that brought people soulless was fucking with Rex Harrison. <laughs> I mean, like, I've smelled ammonia before. Like, like a one whiff of it is enough to make you gag. Yeah. <laughs> no, it burns. Yeah. It's horrible. <laughs> the soundtrack release was accompanied by an enormous media blitz. So they, they, they went all out on the marketing. Right. With half a million copies of mono and stereo LP soundtrack being issued in re- in retail stores for four months before the premiere, the song "Talk to the Animals" was recorded internationally by Bobby Duran, Anthony Williams, Tony Bennett, Dizzy Gillespie, Dat wow. Jones, and Andre uh, Cost- Costellanats. Wow. Uh, 
which are all like very famous jazz men. Yeah. Like it's that's basically Dizzy Gillespie and his studio crew. Right. Sammy Davis Jr., who had been dropped from the film, recorded an entire album of music featured in the film. Wow. Which they paid for. Right. <laughs> he still got his money. Right. Bobby Darren sings uh, Doctor Doolittle was released on was released on Atlantic Records in August of 1967. So mm-hmm. they had like four different versions of the soundtrack. Right. There's like the studio soundtrack they recorded on set. Right. There's the uh, there's the LP soundtrack. There's the LP soundtrack. Uh, the singles, the uh, the jazz studio soundtrack, yeah. and the Bobby Darin sings right. soundtrack. All like A list performers. Yes, which they had to pay for. Yeah. Critical reception. Reviewing the film for the New York Times, Bosley Crowther wrote, "The music is not exceptional. <laughs> <laughs> the rendering of the songs lacks variety and pace. Under Richard Fleischer's direction, it's slow and without surprise." <laughs> Charles Chaplin of the Los Angeles Times claimed, Dr. Doolittle, Dr. Doolittle, though it is beautiful, often funny, and often charming, tuneful and gay, it is, in an odd way, never really sentimentally moving. <laughs> Even in the sense that it sets up in us elders a yearning for lost youth. It is a picture we can greatly enjoy seeing our children enjoy, but without feeling quite at one with them. Mm. Time negatively wrote, Somehow, with the frequent but by no means infallible exception of Walt Disney, Hollywood has never learned what so many children's book writers have known all along. Size and big budget are no substitutes for originality and charm. Mm. In his annual movie guide, critic and historian Leonard Maltin called the film a, quote, colossal dud. (laughs) Maltin admired the film's photography, but was less quick to point out how it nearly bankrupted 20th Century Fox. (laughs) Right. He admitted that, quote, the movie has one merit. If you have unruly children, it may put them to sleep. (laughs) Like, brutal. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. On review aggregation website Rotten Tomatoes, the film has an approval rating of 30%. Wow. Based on 20 reviews, with an average rating of 4.32 out of 10. With Metacritic, the film has a weighted average score of 34 out of 100, based on six critics, indicating, quote, generally unfavorable reviews. And that's pretty rare for those sites, because generally movies that are released that long ago kind of have, like, a positive trend. Right. Like, time has kind of aged them, and you kind of, like, see it for what it was. Right. Like, I've rarely seen, like, a movie from the 60s with, like, a negative review on Rotten Tomatoes. But, like, right. that's, like, the fact that it's at 30% still is crazy. It's, it's, like... The problem with the film itself is that it's just kind of nothing. Yeah. It's it's not, like, so bad it's good. There's yeah. no, like... It's... In terms of, like, aging poorly, it's not terrible. Mm. Like, it's just... It hits that worst possible middle ground yeah. of just being, like, nothing. Like, mildly amusing the first time you see it, and that's it's it. It's just, there's nothing about it is entertaining. Right. It's just sort of a film that happens and then slides out of your head. Right. At the box office. The film also plays strong competition from the Disney-produced animated feature film The Jungle Book. Oh, jeez. Which had opened to considerable critical and audience acclaim yeah. two months earlier. And was still in wide release. Right. Like, Jungle Book was banging. It yeah. was it was rocking the box office. Right. And then you release Dr. Doolittle, which is already kind of jungle-themed. Right. And it just, like, it, it got 
thrown out onto the street like a drunk and then run yeah. over by a car. <laughs> like, oh, man. <sighs> Dr. Doolittle's appeal as family fair was undermined when the press drew attention to the racist content in the books, mm. promoting demands to have them removed from public schools. Mm. So it's like, when I was talking about how racist the book was, yeah. it's like, this book was racist for 1967. Yeah, right. It was that bad. Like, you have to be very, like, explicitly racist yeah. to get banned in the 60s. I, like, part of it was, like, it, it was, like, seriously dehumanizing. Yeah. Like, okay, you know Dr. Doolittle's whole thing about how he can talk to animals? Right. It was explained that it, like, his power kind of worked on the natives. Oh. <laughs> right. Like, <laughs> he can understand their language. Right. It's like, okay. wow. Yeah. <laughs> like, no soft touch there. Yeah. It's bad. <laughs> Jeez. According to studio records, the film needed to earn $31.3 million in rentals to break even. Yeah. And that's in 1967 money. Yeah, that's a lot. And by December of 1970, the film had made $16.3 million. That's not even its budget. No. It's it's like almost its budget. Right. It's like 96% of its budget. But I don't even know if the budget was taking into account like the insane marketing budget, like all those albums they had to like right. produce and stuff. All the, all the rights they had to sell. Yeah. In September of 1970, the studio estimated that it, it had lost... $11.1 million on the wow. movie. So the cost of marketing there was about $10 million. Yeah. But this was not the end for Dr. <laughs> oh, no. Because in 1998, a second adaptation was made starring Eddie Murphy. <clears throat> I have seen that one. Yeah. Right. And it's it's just kind of dumb. It's like whatever. Yeah. I remember thinking it was funny when I was eight. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it was, it like... Film had a budget of thirty million and made uh, two hundred ninety-five million dollars at the box wow. office. But there was, like, I did, had to do research into it because of yeah. the podcast, and it was like fine. But there was one blurb that stood out to me: <clears throat> Eddie Murphy is terrified of live animals, <laughs> and insisted that as many possible be superimposed into scenes. When he couldn't avoid acting in the same room as an animal, the shots frequently ended with Murphy screaming. <laughs> Just, <laughs> I would love to see like a compilation of that. Right, <laughs> Just like, please, cut. <laughs> ah, fuck it, it's turtle away from me. Just a, like being in a production where you're just like constantly terrified. They're not even scary animals. Yeah, it's like a cockatiel. Yeah, and like a Galapagos turtle. Yeah, they're not. It's, it's not like. A bear, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, and you just imagine like him reading his lines and just like internally like shaking. And that's like, that's what it was. He was like panicking. But it's I like I want to rewatch that movie just knowing he was like in fifty percent of the scenes just like terrified right. and like wanting to get away as quickly as possible. It's like I feel I feel bad for him because that's like from his reaction. Like if it ended, if every shot ended with him <laughs> screaming, yeah, it's like a genuine phobia. Yeah, but then it's like. Eddie, why did you sign this contract? (laughs) And do, like, two sequels. Right, he did two sequels. He did two sequels, and, like, there's actually, like, well, okay. He did 
three sequels. The last one was straight to DVD, but then there were also three straight to DVD sequels right. after that, which like four was like his daughter from the film right. doing it, and then the the next two after that were like weird Beverly Hills Chihuahua movies that didn't have Doctor Doolittle in them. <laughs> The Doctor Doolittle cinematic universe. Literally. Uh, but even this was not the end. <laughs> I think I know where this is going. Welcome to 2019. You are an executive at Universal, and you have just released Cats. You are in trouble. But with the recent completion and explosive success of Marvel's Avengers, you've managed to nab Robert Downey Jr. and Tom Holland for a modern comedy reimagination of Dr. Doolittle. This is from Chris Barfield for The Playlist. Calling the production of Doolittle 2020 troubled is a misnomer. As you'll soon see how a crew member described the director of Doolittle, uh, Stephen, Stephen Gagan, as, quote, batshit and a, quote, fucking moron. <laughs> if this is to be believed, it sounds as if Doolittle was a train wreck that Universal was barely able to salvage at the last minute. According to a recent Twitter post, which itself is a repost of a social media thread, an unnamed worker from the set of Doolittle had a ton of things to say about the filming process of the family-friendly film. While we don't know who the whistleblower is, it would appear that from the context of the stories that the person worked on the film's extensive CGI. Before we get into the nitty-gritty, it's important to understand that Doolittle is the upcoming film starring Robert Downey Jr. as the titular doctor that had the innate ability to literally speak to animals. And in the film, it's not just one or two animals that converse with the good doctor. Instead, there is a whole menagerie of wild creatures voiced by A-list talent that populate the film, which is credited to director Stephen Gagan, despite already published reports of Chris McKay coming aboard to rewrite portions of the film for reshoots that were helmed by director Jonathan Liebensman. Mm. So it's like everything is credited to Gagan even though there were like all of these very credible reports that all of his stuff was scrapped and they did right. like a ton of reshoots mm. in like a month right. or something. Which is exactly what happened with uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. Yes. Yeah. Which we would I would like to do an episode on. Yes. So here's the quote from the, uh, the person who worked on set. It was deep in production hell last year. They started filming scenes before they had even planned them. Uh, oh, no, no, no. It had started, they had started filming scenes before they had even planned where the animals would be standing. <laughs> it was nuts. And then the batshit director went and got fired, which was a little too late after his insane outbursts and subsequent banning from stepping foot into both the lead concept department and the lead pre-visual animation department. <laughs> then, he demanded that the pre-visual department be fired because we, quote, can't figure it out on the day. Yeah, Stephen, you can't figure out where five-plus animated characters and Robert Downey Jr. are standing when you have 30 individual camera shots to film on a Monday morning, you fucking moron. <laughs> We attempted to talk and show the director some cinematic sense, but he was literally insane. Almost put a fist through a new 8K TV 
because the talking goose wasn't on screen while it was talking in one shot, even though he specifically asked the week before us to move the goose out of the shot because, quote, the audience doesn't need us to hold their hand and point out every character that's currently talking. (laughs) This guy sounds insane. But here's the kicker. We had footage of him from the week before asking to remove the goose from the screen. <laughs> it was Steven's idea to record every meeting so that we couldn't misinterpret his instructions. <laughs> it's like, how much coke is this guy on? Yeah. That's total cokehead behavior. Right, totally. And he's directing Dr. Doolittle 2020. <laughs> <laughs> when it was mentioned that Liebesman and McKay were brought on to save the film after Universal was displeased with test screenings, the crew member admitted that they weren't there for reshoots, but said, if it's even remotely watchable, then the new guys deserve some fucking medals. Right. Which is, like, usually when you hear, like, late-stage reshoots, that's true. If it's even a little bit good. (laughs) Right. If it's not an utter, utter train wreck. Yeah. Now, even though these stories sound horrible, perhaps the most entertaining rant is published by this disgruntled person published by this disgruntled person, is the description of Gagan's dog. Mate, you wouldn't believe half of the shit that went on during the film's pre-production. Here's a tidbit that I doubt anyone will truly believe. Steven's do- Steven Gagan's dog is one of the most incredibly regal-looking motherfuckers I've ever seen, which is a shame because it's a stone-cold racist. <laughs> and without a doubt, will track down every human being in the building with the slightest drop of ethnic ancestry and bark, and I mean fucking bark. Like how a scrapyard Doberman guard dog might bark at a squirrel with death and violence in its very core. Every single non-pure white studio worker. It was like the end of days, whatever happened to that beautiful dog. It was like the end of days whenever that beautiful dog came to visit with Steven. What the hell? What the fuck? Is this the weird racist spirit from the original books? Like, being channeled into this dog? What the fuck is going on? <laughs> like, that's, like, scary. Well, and one, it's like, why are you bringing your dog on a set where you have live animals? Yeah. That's not a good idea. Right. For the other animals and your dog. Right. Like, some animal's gonna get hurt. Right. It's like, and, and this is just, like, one guy talking about the set. Where it's, yeah. it's like, what? It's like, this is clearly just the tip of the iceberg. Like, right. what else was happening here? <laughs> So this is from ONS Good from Polygon. On top of this, reports earlier in 2019 said that Universal grabbed Jonathan Liebesman, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, for a series of emergency reshoots. The Wall Street Journal on Friday said that the, the shoots were intended to give the film a wider appeal in international markets. That may account for the rapid-fire pacing and the film's lowbrow humor. Mm. Like, how come, like, wider appeal always means, like giving it fart jokes and adding more dumb action. Yeah. I mean, like, all the highest grossing movies of all time don't have fart jokes in them. Right. (laughs) From Boris Kitt for The Hollywood Reporter. This new photography lasted 21 shooting days, not including the new post-production work, according to Insiders, and came after an overhaul courtesy of Jonathan Liebersman and Chris McKay, the helmer of the Lego Batman movie. So, all the reshoots they did was three weeks. That... That you cannot shoot a movie in three weeks. Yeah, no. That is not possible. Right. Like, okay. <sighs> to boldly flee what is considered the worst movie ever made yeah, yeah. was shot in a month. Right. <laughs> that was shot yeah. in four weeks. Yeah. <laughs> You're doing this in three quarters of the time. Yeah, that's like a madcap rush. That, Especially like a huge budget movie. It's not possible. Yeah. It's just not possible. You can't 
do anything with that. Yeah, yeah. Reception. On Rotten Tomatoes, the film holds an approval rating of... Take a guess. 16 Sixteen percent, motherfucker. <laughs> I remember. I, I saw that. I fucking nailed yeah. it. Okay, based on hundred and seventy nine reviews. Oh wow! Like, with every review, it's going to average towards fifty percent. Yeah, hundred. Like the original film was thirty, based on twenty reviews. Right. This is sixteen, based on hundred and seventy nine <laughs> reviews, with an average rating of three point nine out of ten, which is actually almost identical to the. Uh, mm-hmm. The previous film, the right. website's critics consensus reads: Doolittle may have an may be enough to entertain very young viewers, yeah. but they deserve better than this rote adaptation's jumbled story and stale humor. Mm. On Metacritic, the film has a weighted average score of 27 out of 100 based on 43 critics, indicating generally unfavorable reviews. Yeah. Courtney Howard for Variety called the film a frenetic, crass kids flick and wrote. What should have been an off-field adventure quickly curdles into an awful one, thanks to the pedestrian formula and the filmmaker's fixation on fart jokes. The word curdles there is so good. Yeah, that's great for just like a horrible movie. Writing for The Hollywood Reporter, Todd McCarthy said that, quote, from the very first scene, it's clear something is terribly off with this lavishly misbegotten attempt to repopularize an animal-loaded literary franchise that was born almost exactly a century ago. Yeah. British film critic Cart, uh, Mark Kenmode gave the film a negative review, saying, terrible script, terrible visuals, dull plot, dismal gags. The fact that at 101 minutes, it really tested one's patience. It is shockingly poor. <laughs> wow. It's 101 minutes. Why? That's... <laughs> Uh, it is shockingly poor. He particularly criticized Robert Downey Jr.'s attempt at a Welsh accent, calling it, quote, something from Mars. <laughs> Why is he doing a Welsh accent? Why does the character of Dr. Doolittle have to be, like, a certain accent or from a certain place? I, I actually, I read an interview with Downey Jr. about this uh-huh. because he loves doing, like, really intricate character, like, yeah. unorthodox character acting. And right. when, it, when it works, it really works. Yeah. He likes taking interesting historical takes. He was basing... So he was basing the character of Dr. Doolittle on this really, really fascinating historical Welsh doctor mm. who is obsessed with druidism. Hmm. Like <laughs> That's cool. Uh, it's, uh, there's actually a, a wonderful dollop episode about mm. him, and it's, it's hilarious. Nice. He was, like this, he was like this anarchist Welsh separatist doctor druid. Wow. Um, and he was he was a freak. He dressed like Prince. <laughs> it was great. Yeah. Uh, he, he wore like a purple and gold robe all the time and carried a big stick with a crystal on it. And so that's what Robert Downey Jr. was basing Dr. Doolittle yeah. on. <laughs> right. It's just like, you're going too weird with it, man. Yeah, that's too specific. It's it's an interesting concept, and I could see it working if you had a better production. Yeah. The box office. As of February of 2020, Doolittle had grossed $64 million in the United States and Canada and $96 million elsewhere, for a worldwide total of $161 million, against a production budget of $175 million. Dear Lord. Due to its high production and marketing costs, the film will need to gross around 
$500 million in order to break even. Which it will not. <laughs> Following its debut weekend, it was estimated the film would lose the studio between 50 and $100 million. <sighs> what studio was this? Universal? This is Universal. Okay. Wow. Like, and for those of you that don't know, like, uh, a film is, like, a film is only considered a success if it makes essentially double its budget. Yeah, at right. least. That's break-even. Well, break, like, break-even is break-even, but then, like, if it if it doesn't actually make that much profit, it's considered a flop, yeah. right? It's If you have a budget of $500 million, you have to make a billion dollars. Right. Well, because also you're sinking so much money into the marketing, which yeah. isn't even accounted for on the budget. Yeah. Um, so you... And... This didn't even meet production. Yeah, <laughs> like this. This it was actually very similar ratio to the uh, the original one, right. where it made like ninety percent of its budget. It's interesting because, like, I wonder what was it about the Eddie Murphy Doctor Doolittle that made it a success? Like, I don't really remember that movie. Maybe I, it was just like the combination, just like Eddie Murphy's star power at the time, or something about the humor of that movie. Because that movie, like compared to the original and the the new one, like that movie crushed. It wasn't like my sense is that, in despite the production issues, yeah, the new movie was trying to be something it wasn't. Mm-hmm. It was trying to be too epic, too right. raw filled, um, and it just didn't end up being that. Like it, yeah. it fell, sh- it fell short. Yeah. Because there wasn't, like, genuine passion or interest behind the project. Yeah. Right? The the Eddie Murphy one was just, like, it was low budget, and it was trying to be zany. It yeah. wasn't... It's like a straight comedy. Yeah. It was just straight comedy, and it was, like, going for fart jokes. Yeah, totally. And it, I remember it was, like, a little edgy. It was, like, a PG-13, kind of, like, for, like, I, an older audience. I, he, he definitely fucked a dragon at the end. <laughs> like... I thought that was Shrek. No, no, there's, there's like, a definite thing in one of the Eddie Murphy Dr. Doolittle things where it's, like, heavily implied that he had sex with a lady dragon. I think you're thinking of uh, Donkey from Shrek, another Eddie Murphy character. I Because he does fuck a dragon. I think, no, I think it's, like, a reference to that. Like, that's why they put it in the movie. It's, like... It's part of Eddie Murphy's contract. I, I think he just, like, it was one of these things where, like, Dr. Doolittle is one of these, like, safe bet for actor, like, pay off your back taxes yeah, yeah. things. And so I think he didn't care. Right, Like, yeah. it's Eddie Murphy, you can just do whatever goofy shit you want to do. Yeah. Um, so I... I... There were people talking about this. I didn't want to sit down and watch all three Eddie Murphy... Yeah. Like, but there were people talking about some dragon sex. Yeah. And I, I can neither confirm nor deny this, but... Like, if somebody did see these movies and remembers it, please tell us. We need to know. We need to know. It's very important for the future of this podcast. (laughs) It all hinges on this. Oh, God. Well, thank you for that. Yes. (laughs) I had no idea. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Desperate Acts of Capitalism. If you like the show, please subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher. And if you really want to make us happy, you can leave us a nice rating or review. You can follow us on Instagram at Desperate Acts of Capitalism and on Tumblr. Link in the show notes. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on Desperate Acts of Capitalism.